Hello, friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. Great to be with you. Appreciate you tuning in. And I uh, wanted to provide a quick preface to episode nine. Uh, really looking forward to uh, playing this for you, but wanted to just quickly give an introduction. You know, Stephen and I uh, have been in conversation on a number of subjects over the years, one of which uh, has been brought up a number of times, even in previous episodes at a high level, um, and that is the role of women in the Bible, uh, in church, as well as in the home, and uh, the authority of women versus men, and um, just how all that plays out. Should women be preaching? Should they be teaching? Um, who's really the head of the household? Is there is there one? What was Paul's vision? What's the biblical vision, etc.? And uh, as part of that conversation, we, we brought on a particular guest here that we're really looking forward to introducing you to, but uh, really is just a, a tip of an iceberg. Um, in this episode, Nate Gilmore, our guest, does dive right in uh, to a bunch of that content just based on his uh, background, experience, and, and professional expertise as a, as a theologian and a professor. Um, but we did want to make clear we're actually in the process of having a number of other folks, uh, that being guests, on the pod- podcast to cover the same subject, give us different perspectives, both the female and feminist perspective, as well as uh, some of the more traditional conservative, uh, as well as the more progressive uh, perspective. So really looking forward to sharing all this with you. And um, consider this not a be-all, end-all, or a robust uh, kind of exhaustive study on the subject, but just a introduction and just a little piece of that large conversation. Um, hope you enjoy it and uh, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. Great to have you with us. Welcome to episode nine. And we're here with a very special guest. Want to welcome uh, professor, podcast host, uh, theologian, and fellow Georgian, Nate Gilmore, to the show. Nate, welcome. Good to have you. Hey, thank you for having me on board. Uh, you know, I've uh, met up with Stephen a few times, as you noted, uh, and, you know, kind of met through the podcast world. So I'm Glad to uh, come on your relatively new show as sort of a one of the, and I have no idea how I became this, but one of the uh, elder statesmen of Christian podcasting. Right. Yeah, that's right. One of our one of our elder statesmen. Well, hey, Stephen, why don't you give uh, Nate a proper introduction here? Introduce our listeners. Yeah. So, Nate, uh, you you hold, if I'm remembering right, what you described as a hideously hideously bloated Masters of Arts in New Testament. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was on track in seminary to do a, a dual degree, an MDiv, and a Master of Arts in Religion. Uh, but, you know, we discovered, Mary and I, that uh, the area was shrinking demographically. It's since turned it around there in East Tennessee. And what eventually happened was, um, you know, we had to move out of the area because there's just no work for her. So I wrapped up my degree early, but what that meant was I had most of the credits that you need for a Master of Divinity, uh, but not quite enough. Uh, so I ended up, you know, going away with, I think, the second largest Master of Arts in Religion the uh, school had ever awarded. Wow. Okay. Well, then, you, you, know, you your, your doctorate work uh, is in English, right? So you, you are, uh, I could tell our listeners, Nate is a English professor out at Emmanuel College, Correct. Yes, indeed. So uh, after, you know, we left seminary, uh, we moved here to the Athens area in Georgia. Uh, Mary started teaching at Decula Middle School, where she is still teaching. Uh, She just wrapped up her 16th year there. Uh, And then, you know, I started an MA at the University of Georgia in English Literature, uh, took a year off, which is to say I applied for PhD programs and didn't get into any, Uh, worked as a substitute teacher and as an adjunct for one academic year, and then started my PhD in English. So I have uh, three graduate degrees, uh, and, (laughs) you know, on one hand, 
Uh, I didn't finish my PhD till I was 35, which is actually fairly average for humanities PhDs. Uh, but I didn't finish as, as fast as some people. On the other hand, I wouldn't trade the background that I had going into my PhD for anything. I mean, one of the things right. that I discovered pretty soon is that I was asking questions uh, as a graduate student that other people didn't have the background to ask. And that really, you know, gave me a certain critical purchase there in, in graduate school. And I mean, really um, helped me to do that work on a level, you know, that I wouldn't be able to do right out of the gate without that kind of background. So I certainly don't regret the uh, years that I spent in graduate school, though I have, I have, I have to confess, enjoyed the, uh, what are we up to now? Six and a half years that have transpired since. Right. Excellent. Wow. Now you've also uh, you've also sort of served as a kind of itinerant preacher periodically, right? Yeah, I uh, I've been filling pulpit uh, since my seminary days as part of my seminary internship. Um, you know, I preached every fourth Sunday every month, uh, and then you know since I've moved to Georgia, you know I've kind of let people know here and there that you know I've got that background in preaching, so I filled pulpit. You know up until about 2011 as I was needed. And then in 2011, for various unpleasant reasons, uh, Athens Christian Church, where I was attending, you know, found itself without a preacher. And so I let them know, you know, I've got this background, I can do this for cheap. You know, they couldn't afford a full-time preacher. So I did that from November 2011 to January 2015, which is when they fired me. Uh, and, you know, since then... I think they've just kind of had, you know, local retired preachers come in and do their thing. I haven't really kept up with them. But for about three years there, I was also a, a Sunday to Sunday full-time preacher. I, I always like having conversations with people who have that the scholarly background, but also are, have, have ever had to function in a somewhat, you know, pastoral preaching kind of role. Because I think uh, it seems like it's often hard to, to, to do both well. Well, I, I hope that I never claim that I do both well. I mean, I try to do both of them as, as well as I can. But, uh, you know, one thing that I always strove for when I preached was not to rely on my own ability. And, you know, what that meant was, you know, letting a certain set of rules govern my sermon writing, you know. So whatever the shape of the text was became the shape of my sermon. I tried never to do topical sermons. I tried never to you know, take my theological hobby horse and force the text to do something with it. The habit of mind and the habit of composition that I always tried to develop was let the text drive what it is I'm doing. And when I teach a literature class, similar sorts of things. I try to let the shape of the play or the narrative or the verse that I'm doing kind of govern what I do. Now, what's interesting is when I do a writing class, um, I am, in a very straightforward sense, inventing that class as I go along. So it's a different kind of discipline, to be sure. But, you know, I, I think all three of them, you know, require different habits of mind, which is what keeps things interesting. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, and, and I know uh, uh, there, there was at least one sort of kerfuffle over some preaching and, and which led to transition in congregations and whatnot. So I guess you must be doing something right, right? I mean, if you're not, if you're not stirring the pot a little bit, maybe, uh, maybe something's wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as with, you know, so many of these things, I mean, there were a number of stories that went around as to why I got let go. Some said that my sermons were too cerebral. I really don't think they were. You know, some <laughs> said that I just wasn't reaching people on a heart level. I don't even know what that means. Uh, I mean, I think that at least one factor uh, that, you know, I can responsibly say was part of the picture was, yeah, I mean, that people were starting to ask questions about, you know, women in positions of leadership, women preachers, women elders, so on and so forth. And, you know, what that developed into was the elders asked me to basically run a brief class for the elders. Um, and so I, I developed a uh, brief curriculum. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on the uh, Christian Feminist podcast when I talked about this sort of thing, and I think I ended up posting them on the show notes. Um, but, you know, I, I did a careful study of the Greek text of the sort of um, the key passages uh, that people cite most often when they say that women should not be in positions of authority in churches. And, I mean, what I discovered there uh, was that my sort of 
I don't know whether to call it an agnosticism or a sort of laissez-faire attitude. It was something, you know, that had flavors of both. But I basically held the position for a lot of years that, you know, some churches don't have women in authority. And that's, you know, a matter of liberty rather than of, you know, essential unity. And then some churches don't. And that's, again, you know, their liberty to do that. What I discovered in the course of developing that curriculum and, you know, teaching those classes to the elders is that if I'm honest with myself, the New Testament is really quite clear that, you know, part of what they are dealing with is not whether or not women should be in authority, but what to do now that women are in fact in authority. Hmm. So, I mean, that discovery Hmm. on a literary level really led to a revolution in my own theology. I said, you know, okay, um, there are certainly moments in the New Testament where they reach for uh, you know, some sort of cultural anchors, if you will, to say, how can we stabilize this thing? But they always reach for them in the face of this reality that is breaking into their world that, you know, to use the, you know, the passage from Joel that St. Peter quotes in Acts 2, the sons and the daughters are prophesying, yes. right? Wow. Um, and, you know, to speak for God is a grave thing. And it seems like the spirit is moving in such a way that it's not only free people, but slaves who are doing it. It's not only Jews, but also Gentiles are doing it. It's not only men, but it's also women who are doing it. And so, you know, like I said, that that really stands as a, a big shift in the way that I did theology. I was always generally in favor of women preachers, women being ordained, so on and so forth. But I've come to see it as something that is central to what the New Testament is doing more than you know, a matter of individual congregation style in the modern era. Wow. That's a, that's really interesting. I I, I appreciate the background and story. And that's, that's, that's what the the conversation that we wanted to have with you here today is is really about. Um, This is something that I, I too have, have, uh, I guess kind of shifted on in recent years. I mean, it's one of those things where just for a long time, there wasn't really any debate in my mind because things seemed pretty black and white. Um, but you know, for whatever reason, I mean, I, I think especially having a daughter kind of got me thinking about it, you know, wow, if, it's, if my daughter grows up and she wants to go off to seminary and become a, a pastor and I can't convince her to pursue a more lucrative position, then I, I'd, I'd like her to preach at my church sometime. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to be in a place that would be, uh, um, you know, open to hearing what she has to say, uh, in a ministerial role. So, um, I don't know, life circumstances, you know, all kinds of things that kind of opened me up to the debate. And then, uh, of course, going in and reading some things about it, uh, I found that there really is, I mean, there, there really is, a, I, I agree, it's kind of a matter of liberty. Um, there's some controversy, it depends on what moves you make, and that kind of seems how it is with everything in the Bible now. Yeah, and I mean, I can see that on a lot of questions. You know, like I said, in my mind, I guess the shift that I made is not necessarily, you know, whether it's a matter of liberty. I mean, I'm, I'm still not going to say that, for instance, a conservative Presbyterian church that, you know, only ordains men as, you know, elders and, and pastors, I'm not going to say that they are not Christian. What I will say is that there are substantial flaws in the way that they are interpreting what's going on in the New Testament, whereas before I would have said that, you know, um, on balance, you know, I, I prefer one reading, but the other one, you know, makes some sense. I'm, I'm getting more and more to the place where I'm saying that the readings that would exclude women from those positions of, you know, authority, influence, teaching, so on and so forth, are substantially ignoring what the New Testament's actually doing. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, I was <clears> thinking like, uh, it's helpful to have someone like you on here, Nate, simply because of your kind of groundedness in scripture and in the history. You know, I think to Stephen's point, I think for a lot of folks, this whole conversation about women's roles that we want to break down a bit more here and hopefully in other episodes as well, doesn't necessarily come up in, until it comes up. You know, Stephen's point about life experience, you know, having a daughter, thinking about these things. Um, I would imagine for a lot of our listeners, just depending on what kind of tribe you come from, either more on the egalitarian or on the complementarian side of, uh, of the coin, which we'll discuss, um, you know, it, it kind of just is status quo. And we say that, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And this is what we do and teach and believe. But when you're confronted with someone or a life event or something that causes you 
to, to think differently or to at least question, um, you're then left with options, one of which is to really dive into the scriptures and determine kind of what's there, what it meant historically, and then pull in a number of experts and 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 scholars in the space, and just have a have a do some do a deep dive. You know, learn more about what's there. I think often what can happen, in my experience at least, is there can be this sort of <clears throat> the language that that can be spoken is around. Well, this you know, there's a biblical way and there's an unbiblical way. And if I, you know, if you're going to convince me on either side of this argument, I'm going to have to see it in the Bible, and it's going to have to be crystal clear. And um, this is something we've talked a bit about, actually, a good bit about on the podcast, on this podcast in the past. And I was hoping Nate, you could maybe help us just to to kind of pull back a little bit and, and just talk about kind of the argument and maybe some of the history on either side of the coin. You know, the the complementarian side, um, which is more of the traditional patriarchal kind of w- the the woman is there in her role to support the man uh, and he ultimately kind of has the authority that she doesn't have um and, and there's kind of maybe equal equality in terms of being but but certainly inequality in terms of function versus the egalitarian side which would basically say that you know it, there's full equality both in terms of being and in terms of function not only in the household but but also in terms of the church and in church leadership so Nate do you mind just shedding some light on a couple of those things I know I was spitballing a bit but um, happy to get your take and maybe you can set some groundwork for us here well sure I mean to give you know just the you know mile in the sky a survey of things I mean you're right that it is a question of the history of interpretation so when we look at the new testament what kind of a book are we reading and for a lot of centuries i mean what we call the patristic patristic era you know what i would call the sort of pre-medieval intellectual tradition of the church i mean the new testament was regarded as something analogous to plato's dialogues Uh, so i mean it was a source of authority to be sure Uh, It was a regulative book, to be sure. Uh, And, I mean, you know, just as importantly as those things, uh, it was a place, it was a site where wisdom came, right? Uh, So, I mean, you know, just for instance, you know, when you read um, some of the apologetics of that patristic period, uh, you're going to see people, you know, making reference to the Christian philosophy and, you know, living in the Christian way in the same way that a Stoic might talk about living in the Stoic way. And in that, you know, context, uh, it makes perfect sense to say that, you know, Christianity is going to share with those philosophical traditions a basic understanding of human nature. And unfortunately, you know, I mean, in the Mediterranean world, you know, the Greek and the Roman and to a large extent the Persian uh, way of thinking, uh, women are, you know, there as people who continue family lines uh women are there as you know domestic help to be sure but women are not part of public life in the way that you know we just kind of take for granted here in the 21st century right right uh for you know a woman to stand as a candidate to be emperor of rome which is about the closest analog that we've got to the u.s president would have been unheard of um and for that reason you know there there was never any question really uh of you know are we going to think of women as you know candidates for pastor for bishop for you know those sorts of positions right uh now once you get into the you know medieval church uh the new testament you know remains an authority to be sure it remains regulative to be sure uh but it also becomes allegorical in ways that you know open up possibilities Uh, that are genuinely new, right? So, I mean, you get figures like Julian of Norwich, Marjorie Kemp, uh, who are writing theology, uh, who are in a large way, you know, teaching men theology. You've got very powerful abbesses of, you know, of uh, nunneries uh, who are, you know, very much authority figures. Uh, And in that era, you still don't get a strong sense uh, that, you know, women are part of public life so much as they are sort of a counter-public or a parallel public. Right. Now, when you get to the Reformation, on some fronts you get a sort of setback to that, you know, as marriage becomes uh, a far more universal thing, you stop having, you know, the 
celibate life as you know a sort of higher calling uh women's roles really get shifted into the house in a far more thoroughgoing way but then on the other hand in some of the more radical wings of the protestant reformation like the quakers like the anabaptists um you know like some of the hussites uh you actually start getting women preachers now in all of those you know the text of the New Testament hasn't changed, but what does change is what kind of a book you're looking at. So, I mean, you know, is the New right. Testament essentially uh, communicating a wisdom tradition, as the patristics seem to view it, or is it more of a revolutionary book, the way that Martin Luther tended to view it? Now, I say Luther not because he had a great uh, penchant for inviting women to preach. He certainly didn't. But when you view the Bible as essentially antithetical to the larger philosophical assumptions of, you know, your surrounding intellectual world, that opens up possibilities for women being in there. And in some ways, you know, and this is where historical biblical scholarship comes in, it is truer to what the New Testament would have been doing in its own first century context. Wow. And, you know, I I, I wait until Hmm. after the Reformation to jump back to the first century because this strong disconnect that you know we sometimes talk about as modern Christians between the first century church and the modern church isn't really something that's part of the horizon or the imagination in nearly as as powerful a way during the patristic or middle ages as it is now in the modern period in the modern period we have this sense that hmm. you know not only has the church gotten better or worse in various eras but it's genuinely different intellectually so that the possibility arises of saying something like what you know you were mentioning earlier, uh, Andrew. That you know, are we going to take the biblical way? Or are we going to take the cultural way? Right. Well, that you know, I, I guess you know some version of that might have been on the horizon, uh, but really, that's not the question that people were asking until you get a historical consciousness that is robust enough to see the modern as genuinely different from the ancient. Does that, does that mm. distinction make some sense? Yeah. I, I, I think it does. I think, I think that's, that's very illuminating. I mean, I, I, I uh, think it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we're, I mean, um, I, I want to be sensitive to time here and, and there's, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about. Um, I, I'm thinking it'd be great, you know, to kind of jump into the, to the verses here, but very quickly yeah. before we do, can you kind of lay out just in about in you know two minutes or so the two general I mean you know the two the two general camps here uh, and and just the highlights of each of their of their positions? Yeah, that would be helpful. That'd be really helpful. Sure thing. I mean, you know, when you talk about uh, you know competing schools of interpretation on this particular question, you know, in the 21st century, you're right. I mean, uh, there are the complementarians. And, uh, you know, I try to pick intelligent exemplars of these. So I'll pick David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast, good friend of mine. Um, You know, what David would say is that, you know, the New Testament has a regulative role in the Christian community. Uh, With that, I would agree with him. And what he would say is that the, you know, direct uh, indicative and imperative sentences that deal with women in the church uh, limit their roles. And, you know... Um, that is not to say that it diminishes their roles, but it is to say that, you know, these are available to women, these are not, these are available to men, these are not. Uh, and for David and, you know, his wife Katie and other complementarians, the roles of preacher, of elder, uh, those generally speaking are roles that men can play, but roles that women ought not to play. Right. Now, the other, you know, big camp is called the egalitarian and their tendency is to take, again, the New Testament as regulative, but their priority uh, tends to be on those passages that uh, make the Christ event something that, you know, genuinely ruptures the social divisions of the ancient world. So, you know, most famously, Galatians 3.28, uh, in Christ there is no slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male and female, Right. Uh, I think I misquoted right. that, but you can go look it up. It's Galatians 3, no, 28. Good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but then there are also places, you know, like I mentioned earlier in Acts 2, where, you know, the prophet Joel uh, becomes an oracle for the coming of the Spirit. And in that coming, 
Uh, it is the old and the young, the free and the slave, the rich and the poor, the men and the women uh, who are the recipients mm. of that spirit. Right. Uh, you've got the epilogues to, you know, St. Paul's letters. You can tell which of these camps I tend to sympathize with, I'm sure. You know, where you've got women named as people who are leading. You've got 1 Corinthians 11, where it doesn't, again, and I mean, this was one of the passages that really kind of got me asking new questions. It says, when a woman is prophesying before the assembly... So it's not an argument about whether or not women should. It's an assumption that the way that the Spirit is moving in this moment in the history of God, women are, in fact, prophesying in the assembly, right? Yeah. So, you know, those are the two basic camps. And, you know, as I said, the, uh, the debate, you know, is really a matter of what kind of a book is the Bible. Is it a stabilizing book or is it a destabilizing book? first and foremost. Mm. Now, most people who have read much Bible will say that, you know, it does both of those roles, but one of them tends to take precedence over the other. Mm. Right. Wow. Wait, Nick, that is so fascinating. Nick, could you expound just a little bit on that? So when you talk about the Bible as destabilizing and a destabilizing text versus a stabilizing text, can, can you just expound on that? I think it's really rich. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, the stabilizing view of the Bible, and I mean, you know, there's a there's a rich and a, a valid tradition of viewing the Bible first and foremost as a stabilizing book, uh, says that, you know, the main problem with the world is that as individuals, we tend to mess things up. Uh, we tend to take a given and a good divine order And because of our own pride or because of our own desires or because of our own individual uh, crimes, failings, and rebellions, we tend to discard that order, throw it into chaos, so on and so forth. So the main ethical um, role of the text of the Bible is to bring us back. It's a conservative kind of a book to bring us back to this morality that is basically shared, if we are honest with ourselves, but because of our own sinfulness, pride, desire, so on and so forth, uh, we tend not to go there. Right. Now, okay. the other tendency uh, is to view the main problem with the world, uh, a problem of what St. Paul calls uh, powers and principalities, thrones and dominions, so on and so forth. We get this language in uh, Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, and the idea there is not that you know you have a single recognized order that everyone basically knows, but because of our own moral failings, we depart from it, but rather that you have a plurality and what I would call an antithesis of orders, plural, uh, hmm. and that you know the main role of the New Testament is to take those orders that we take for granted uh, and to shake up their stability so that we start to become capable of calling them into question. Dude. And like I said, yes. you know, I mean, what, what I came to realize uh, is that what we've got going on in a lot of those New Testament passages that people tend to quote is moments where, you know, either St. Peter, St. Paul, St. John uh, are in a community where that destabilizing event has already started to happen with the coming of the Spirit. And what they're having to do is write in a way that doesn't necessarily reverse that movement of the Spirit, but does bring some stability to it for the sake of witnessing to a world that is very respectful of stability. Right. Wow. That's uh, I, I, I haven't quite thought of it exactly like that and that's uh wow yeah. man, that is that is really helpful i gotta i gotta i gotta let that one sink in for a while yeah we, i love that um so so nate there's uh and i guess we, we should tell our listeners you know the irony isn't lost on us that like there's not a woman on this podcast okay so <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait a minute yeah uh christian feminists if you're out there uh we'd love to have you on sometime and and and, and uh you know right our wrongs here but um Nate, can you uh, can we jump into just a just a, just a few of the passages? I mean, uh, there's there, there's a, there's a, a number that we can go into, but in your mind, what are sort of the most like what what's like the most um, what are the most hotly debated? And then we can start with there, and then we'll sort of unpack that from uh, an egalitarian perspective. Which correct me if I'm wrong here. That is that is sort of the 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 camp you you plant yourself in, right? 
Yeah, that is the tendency. That is my tendency. Yeah. So, you know, one of them that, um, you know, tends to be a sort of go-to passage for those in the complementarian side is uh, 1 Timothy. I mean, as a whole, but especially 1 Timothy chapter 2. And in that one, you get a couple key passages uh, that are, you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it. I mean, you know, they are directed towards a certain disorder that has risen in the con- congregation that St. Paul's writing to uh, because of the activity of certain women. Uh, you know, historically, I mean, that's hard to deny looking at, you know, the content of the letter. So one of the one of the bits of chapter two uh, that often gets uh, played up is this uh, counsel that he gives late in the chapter uh, that women are to keep silent in the congregation. Now, what we've got there uh, is basically a cheat in the translation. Uh, the word that you've got there is the same word that appears earlier in that chapter, and I'll let our listeners you know, take a look at their Bibles mm. uh, to see what I'm talking about. When St. Paul begins that paragraph, he says that all Christians should try, strive to lead quiet lives in most English translations. Right. Now, the difference between that quiet and that silence in English is really profound, right? To be quiet uh, can be an ethical disposition. It can be, you know, to keep order in church. It can be to, you know, get control of your squirrely kids on Sunday morning. Uh, but silence, I mean, <laughs> is a pretty absolute thing. It means no sound at all. Right. In Greek, they're the same word. So, I mean, that's one translator's mm. cheat going on there. All right. Wow. Now, the other thing that um, interesting. that often, you know, um, gets cited is that, you know, when St. Paul says those who would strive to the office of overseer, episkopos, um, you know, should be a man of one woman, if you translate the Greek literally. Uh, and so, you know, the, the reason that that one, you know, becomes so central is fairly evident, you know. Uh, if you're a man of one woman, then by nef- definition, you're a man. Uh, and moreover, you should be married. And, you know, in some churches, and I, I respect these churches for being pretty consistent on the question, uh, you shouldn't be a man who has divorced and remarried. Um, now, I, I won't deny that, I mean, that is exactly what St. Paul says about the men who are going to be elders. Where translations cheat is that when you see that word elder, uh, you know, sometimes even with a capital E in your English Bible, that is a comparative adjective. Uh, it's a comparative version of old, so it's an older man. And in other passages, it talks about, you know, uh, the older women in the church, uh, presbyteri. So if you hear those, presbyteroi, presbyteri, they're the same word, just different suffixes, one masculine, one feminine. Hmm. Uh, okay. And so, I mean, what the structure of the letter seems to be doing is setting up, you know, guidelines for those who are in authority, who are men and who are women. But the way that translations cheat, and you can go look this up, I mean, it happens in just about every English translation of 1 Timothy, is that when it talks about the presbyteroi, the masculine older people, uh, it'll say elders, which is a very officious, grave-sounding noun. But when you get to presbyteri, the same word, feminine suffix, it'll just say old women. Wow. And, you know, that is Hmm. the same word in both cases. I mean, you should translate both of them elders if you translate one of them elder. And frankly, I mean, when I I teach that passage, that's exactly what I do is I say, your Bibles are going to say older women, but I mean, this is the same noun that St. Paul was using when he was talking about elders earlier on. So do you, well, let me ask you this. Do you think that there is evidence in the Bible from what women, uh, just looking at what women did in the New Testament specifically, uh, that women did play the role of elders? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, if that noun is there in the text, it probably means that it refers to something, right? Right. Uh, you know, and, and I said earlier it's a comparative adjective, but it's used as a as a substantive adjective, which is to say it's the subject of a sentence, right? So when the elders, feminine, uh, you know, exercise authority, they should yada, 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 right? And, you know, if a woman decides to become an elder, uh, then yada, 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 right? So, I mean, I think that that, just on its face, you know, tells you that there's some parallel to the elder men in the congregation, right? I think you also see, like I said, 1 Corinthians 11, a working assumption that women are preaching. Is it, that, that, that's where uh, when women, women prophesy, right? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When they speak in behalf of God to the assembly, they should cover their heads, right? Now, the reason they should cover their heads is a little bit squirrely, and, you know, uh, that's a a different conversation we probably won't dig into tonight. But the working assumption is that they're going to do it, right? And likewise, the narratives in Acts have Lydia and Phoebe, who are very much powerful, influential figures. Uh, Likewise, you know, you get uh, addresses to uh, Junia, you know, in the epilogue to Romans. So, I mean, I I think that if you look at the evidence, what the New Testament is doing is not asking in the abstract, what would we do if a woman wanted to preach? But the question it's really posing is, now that we've got women preachers, how are we going to order ourselves so that we can, you know, rejoice in this movement of the Holy Spirit and also present ourselves in such a way that we are bearing a good witness to a good God to a city that we live in that would find this just utterly scandalous. Yes. Wow. So that's Come gosh, on, man. man. What, 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 so what do you do then? Uh, what about with uh, first Timothy, let's say two, let's say eight, eight through 15 there. I mean, there's there, in verse 12. Um, that, that's the verse I believe where it says, uh, I, I, I do not, or maybe it's, I am not permitting, um, a, a woman to teach or have authority over a man. How do, how do you handle that that verse? Yeah, I mean that's a, another passage, and I, and I forgot about that one when I was talking about First Timothy earlier. Um, you know, again, that is a moment where you know the translation takes a very violent word and sort of neutralizes it. So I mean the the Greek there, and I don't have the Greek text in front of me right now, guys. So I apologize for that. I'm working largely from memory. But the Greek verb there is a verb for usurp. Uh, And in fact, that's how the King James translates that, right? I mean, to usurp, uh, if you were living in the mid-first century in the Roman Empire, you know full well what a usurper is. It is Pompey Magnus. It is Julius Caesar. uh, It is Mark Antony. It is these, you know, powerful individuals who decide that, you know, the force of their own will should be a greater good than the peace of the Republic. And so, I mean, St. Paul there, I mean, is telling these women, you are not to be usurpers. Uh, But I mean, I think that the emphasis there is on the usurping, not on the fact that they're women. So, I mean, you know, the implication is, again, because it's part of that same Greek paragraph, is that nobody should be usurping uh, in the assembly of God. I mean, you know, this is ecclesia after all. Uh, this is supposed to be a deliberative body. It's supposed to be an orderly body. And for people to usurp uh, is fundamentally a betrayal of the nature of that gathering. Hmm. Yeah, that's, man, that, that's yeah. helpful. So what uh, I know, um, th- there's a really good book. I don't know if our listeners, if they're interested, interested in really diving in fairly deep in this. There's a, uh, a guy, Philip Barton Payne, who wrote a book called Man, a Woman, One in Christ. And I just finished it a, a couple of weeks ago. And from what I can tell, it seems to be one of the one of the one of the more sort of substantial uh, kind of lasting contributions to the egalitarian side of things. Um, and, and Nate, I'd be curious to see what you think about this. He he says that there's a word there. Uh, I could be pronouncing it wrong. I'm looking at the Greek. It's it's a ude, um, and it's it's the uh, it's the word that that it's and I mean or or to teach. I don't permit. I'm not permitting women to teach or have authority, uh, and 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 there's some debate over that over that that uh, that word there as to whether it means whether it's introducing something different. So, teaching or having authority as sort of two different things, or whether it's introducing uh, it sort of it functions more like uh, like we would use you know, the the phrase law and order, right? Whether it's um, introducing one sort of uh, idea. Do you have anything interesting to, 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 to provide there? Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating question. Part of, uh, you know, I've not read that book, so I mean, I'll just go ahead and preface by saying that. Uh, but I think that that verb to teach uh, is one that certainly appears a number of places in the New Testament. And, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, for instance, at the at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, you know, uh, Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you all of the knowledge that you need. Uh, the epistle of 1 John says that, you know, 
Uh, we do not teach each other to know God anymore. Um, so, I mean, you know, there is a connotation of to teach in the ancient world that means to introduce entirely new and entirely revolutionary categories uh, that might be operative there. So, I mean, you know, again, you know, not having read the, the pain book, um, I could still, you know, make, you know, probably a, a tentative case that, you know, what St. Paul might have in mind there is uh, these women who are usurping. And again, remember the violent overthrow character of that word, um, you know, the form of that usurping would probably be, you know, to say, um, you know, all this Jesus stuff is fine, but we've got some even better stuff. That certainly seems to be what's happening in the uh, first letter of John, right? You know, John has to tell them, if you're in Christ, then you don't miss the mark. You know, it's not that you're waiting for the good stuff. You've already got the good stuff, right? Um, I'm not saying that it's definitely the same connotation that, you know, First Timothy 2 is working with, but I could definitely see, I mean, if pain is heading in that direction, that that could be a possible reading of that. Yeah, he, it's interesting. He, he, uh, he, he, his argument, as I understand it, is that um, uh, you, you can almost translate it as, I do not permit a woman to teach in such a way as to usurp. Um, and he finds it relevant, I guess, because of what was going on in Ephesus at the time and uh, with with the cult of, was it Dionysus? Dionysus? Are you familiar with that? Um, uh, yeah, I believe the one that most scholars point to is the cult of Diana or Demeter, one of the two. Um, oh, great is Diana of the Ephesians, as they chant in Acts, right? So, yeah, I mean, I you know, that's certainly a possibility there as well. Uh, and so, uh, uh, I guess with with um, with uh, with the cult, something culturally at the time was happening where there was sort of an aggressive, uh, you know, feminism, where, where like the response to 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 crushing patriarchy was just crushing matriarchy. And, and so, maybe what Paul is doing there is saying, you know, I, I'm not permitting a woman to do that because that's kind of in vogue right now. Um, in, in that town, in, you know, in Ephesus, uh, but he would, you know, he, he would probably say the same thing to a man, right? I'm not, I, I wouldn't, it's not, not that I would permit a man to, you know, go and usurp a woman either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like I said, I mean, that tends to be the way that I teach that passage when I do teach First Timothy is that, you know, the verb there is really the core of Paul's injunction, right? Um, I do not allow, and you know, in that case, it's a woman to usurp. But, I mean, the implication seems to be, since he wants everyone to live in that quiet or in that silence, that he wouldn't allow a man to usurp either. I mean, the point is, no one should be violently overthrowing the one who is speaking in behalf of God at a given moment, right? It should be more orderly a an assembly. That's helpful. So, uh, listen, Nate, I wanna be, I'm going to be sensitive to time here. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Um, you know, there's so much more we could talk about this, and, and we are reaching out to a few more guests here that I'm hoping to have on um, uh, shortly to continue the conversation. And, of course, we'd love to have you on again some other time, too, if you're welcome or if you're uh, open to it. But uh, what do you think, when, when we kind of, when we, when we go back to just the life of the church, what, uh, is, is it possible for churches to disagree, for, for people in, in the pews to disagree on this subject? And yet, still live in a way that is faithful to, uh, let's say, Paul's vision of, of life in this community in Christ, where div where dividing walls are falling apart. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I mean, the first thing that I would say, and it's going to sound like an utter dodge, uh, but it's that we do not live in Paul's moment. And here's why I think that that's important, because in our moment, you know, one of the things that I think. <sighs> is straining, I'm not going to say damaging, but is straining our witness to the world, uh, is the fact that, you know, we have become just another iteration of consumer choice. So, I mean, you know, if a church is saying what you like for them to be saying, then you go to that church, and if they're not, then you don't. Uh, if a church, you know, caters to your demographic, whether that be an ethnic or a racial demographic, whether that be a, an old or a young demographic, that's where you go. And I think that, you know, uh, Paul's big concern, uh, whether it be in 1 Corinthians or whether it be in Ephesians or whatever, 
uh, is very much along the lines of, you know, a group that is assuming a unity to the church, uh, but is threatening that unity by the sharpness of their disagreement. I think in our moment, the big problem is not that, but it is a church that's not even pretending to be unified, uh, but that is altering the ways and sometimes the content of what we teach precisely to draw people away from other churches, right? So, I mean, my approach to this has been uh, when I've been part of churches, you know, that did not ordain women, that did not allow women to be in positions of influence, uh, my sort of working rule, and I mean, you know, this rule certainly is not without its risks and, you know, it bit me in the butt pretty big a couple times, uh, is that I'm going to spend not weeks and not months, but years uh, trying to be faithfully present in that place so that I become a person to whom they actually pose questions like this. Um, you know, one tendency, uh, and you know, th this is a, a question off to the side of the main one, but I think it's, it's related enough and important enough that it's worth mentioning. There's a, a definitely a movement within, you know, sort of more progressive Christianity to say that if a church is organized in such a way uh, that you find offensive politically, then the proper ethical response is to leave it and to find a church that is organized more ethically. My approach over the years hasn't been that. It's been to say the churches that are not organized in ways that they should be might be just the ones that most need someone patiently to pose those questions to them over the course of years. Now, like I said, I mean, you know, uh, in my own life, you know, the church that I attended, you know, from the time that I was, and I'm doing some quick math here, you know, um, about 30 years old to about 37 years old, um, did not hesitate to dispatch me. And I won't say the church did, I'll say the leadership did. So, I mean, you know, uh, that seven year span, of course, you know, I can't help because I'm an egomaniac to think of, you know, the story of, uh, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, right? You know, I mean... Uh, seven years is not an insignificant span of time and you know we lost that and you know the damage is done and it can't be undone this side of the eschaton right uh, but I still even with that think that you know there's something to be commended about sticking with those communities and you know becoming the person that they find worthwhile to pose those questions to. And eventually, mm -hmm. after a few years, that happens. Wow. That's a, that's a challenging vision, man. I mean, that's a, uh, wow. <laughs> this idea that, that a lot of the problem with the, with church, with our church or with our witness of the world today is that we become just another uh, iteration of, you know, the, the marketplace. You know, you could, if you like, if you like women preachers, you can go over here. If you don't, you go over here. And, and it's just... <laughs> I, I, it almost sounds like there's some kind of a cross we'd have to bear in order to live that one out. Yeah, and I do right. want to be clear that, I mean, if a church is genuinely abusive, if it's doing genuine harm, then I'm not counseling anyone to remain there uh, because, I mean, there is certainly a place for forgiveness. Uh, but, I mean, forgiveness is something that, you know, in Christian theology happens within a community. Uh, it happens, you know, within that shared account that we have to give for our forgiveness, right? Uh, and I mean, when it becomes a weapon that, you know, the strong use to abuse the less powerful, then it becomes a demonic thing. So, I mean, I, I want to be real clear about that because sometimes people will hear, you know, my story and they'll say what he's counseling is that everyone should be a masochist like Gilmore is. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that, you know, if you are able and if you are you know, in a community that, you know, in which that's a possibility, then there is genuinely some good that can come from it. Yeah. That's good. Well, Nate, listen, man, we are, uh, we're, we're up on time here and I, uh, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. Um, I, uh, gosh, is there anything, uh, kind of give you the last word here. You know, there's a Christian, there's a podcast you should check out sometime called the Christian Humanists, and and one of the things they do in their podcast is uh, they leave the last word of their guest. So, 
Nate's one of the hosts, if our listeners aren't aware. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, I'll apologize to you guys and I'll apologize to the listeners. Uh, the whole time we've been having this conversation, my computer, for some reason, is just absolutely doing battle with me. Uh, so, I mean, I, I we're having trouble hearing each other. So if it's a little bit disjointed, uh, please blame it on me and not on these good gentlemen and their show. Uh, but as far as the last word on this, you know, um, like I said, one of the concerns that al- that always rides with me on this question uh, is that in the abstract and on a on an academic level, I'll call it that since I am an academic, these are questions that, as I said before, uh, I think the Greek text, if you read it as an artifact of its time and as a response to things that are happening in the world by the Spirit, you know, through the grace of God, it's fairly evident that you're dealing with a community where women have influence, where women are teaching, where women have authority. When you're dealing with a 21st century church, especially with people who have spent most of their lives not in the 21st century but in the 20th, you are dealing with a very different kind of question because people live their lives differently around a church where they might spend 30 years than they do around a college where they spend four or five years. So my last word is um, study to be sure learn to be sure, be strong in your convictions to be sure, but also be sure to respect the context in which your conversations happen. A church is different from a college classroom. Uh, A college classroom is different from a Facebook exchange. You know, this is the rhetoric professor in me coming out, but I mean, pay attention to your audience. That's always important. So that's going to be my last word, guys. Awesome. Nate, well, thank you again. We're super grateful to have you here and would definitely uh, continue to direct folks your way. We'll have some information in the show notes and certainly link to the uh, Christian Humanist podcast, which again, Nate hosts. And uh, thanks so much for letting us be a part of this conversation and just uh, all the enlightened, uh, the enlightened you know, help here. And uh, again, we're grateful for you and uh, your ability to add some dialogue to our journey uh, here. So thanks again, Nate. For all our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll, we'll see you on the next one.